Welcome to our Forever Young Podcast, where we chat about ways to keep our bodies and minds young, because you're never too old to become younger. My name is Christiana Eggy. And my name is Sherry Marie Chu. Welcome to a special episode of Let's Talk Diabetes with my friend and mentor, Angela Walker-Sterling. This has been a long, long time coming. <laughs> Angela actually inspired me to become a diabetes educator after over 33 years of nursing. Between Angela and I, I think we have over 70 years of nursing. That's not to say that we are older than 25. <laughs> so I had never had anyone talk diabetes the way she did. So we started working together as partners in wellness and impacted a lot of lives through health management and weight management. When we started this podcast, she was the very first guest I wanted on, but her hectic work and family life wouldn't allow it. But she's here today. And so before we delve into this exciting topic, I would like to introduce Angela. Angela is a clinical nurse specialist in diabetes with a master's degree in community health and certification in addictions and mental health. We actually sort of trend the same path. Yes. <laughs> so her, yes, really. Her former roles include the development of hospital policies and staff education programs related to diabetes management therapies. In 2005, her published thesis on African-Americans and obesity fueled her passion to promote wellness through education and lifestyle changes, particularly among high-risk populations. Angela currently works as a diabetes educator in an outpatient clinic in Durham and volunteers her time to support people living with diabetes in her community. Welcome, Angela, to our Forever Young podcast. I'm so glad to have you here with us finally. I've heard so much about you, so I hope this is just one of very many visits that we'll have with you on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Christiana has been my loyal partner for many years in spreading the good news about diabetes that you cannot just survive but live well with the condition, and also that we're just caring for people with diabetes and not a diabetic. And so if I say the word diabetic tonight, Chris, please feel free to, please feel free to correct dollars. me. <laughs> we're not talking about diabetics. We're talking about people with diabetic, diabetes. That's right. So, so as always, I'd like to welcome our listeners to settle in with a tall glass of water or to put their walking shoes on as they listen in on our conversation about diabetes. So Angela, what's matter a lot? So you were just explaining about being uh, called a diabetic as opposed to living with diabetes. So what is diabetes and what is its connection to sugar, please? A lot of people will say, I have a sugar problem when they're trying to tell you they have diabetes. Absolutely. Well, the word, the, the actual word diabetes, and a lot of people do not realize this, but 
if you look it up, it actually means excess urination or excessive fluid being passed out that on the surface appears to have basically no link to sugars. But the reason behind the excess urination is actually the hidden condition to the term, the hidden connection, I'm sorry, to the term diabetes. So in medicine, there are two types of conditions that lead to excess urination or the term diabetes. One is diabetes insipidus, which literally means water diabetes. And this is caused by the problem with a hormone called vasopressin that helps your kidney balance the amount of fluid in your body. If the body cannot make enough of the hormone, most of the fluid gets flushed out instead of returning to the bloodstream. Hence the term diabetes, but the insipidus along with the term diabetes means water diabetes or fluid diabetes. And then there's diabetes mellitus. We never really hear of the term mellitus added to diabetes in layman terms, but that is actually what it is. And the word, the word mellitus literally means sweet water. So when we're talking about diabetes, we're literally talking about sweet water, and that water is actually urine. So prior to blood tests in the late 1600s, people known as water tasters diagnosed diabetes by tasting the urine of people suspected to have diabetes. Oh I know goodness. it sounds gross, but that's exactly the way it was before we had blood tests, before we had lab work. Remember back in the 1600s, we didn't have these labs. We didn't have these tests. So that was the only way to di diagnose a person suspected with diabetes. And so these were professional water tasters. And basically, <laughs> they... <laughs> And basically, if the urine tasted sweet, di diabetes was diagnosed. So in 1675, the word mellitus, which means actually means honey, was added to the term diabetes. But generally speaking, when we speak of a person with diabetes, the reference is most often to diabetes mellitus, and it means too much glucose or too much sugar is constantly moving through the bloodstream, leading to an excess of water passing through the kidneys. So when someone refers to it in reference to sugars, they are correct. But the term diabetes actually means excess water, which is one of the symptoms of diabetes. And uh, before I continue on, I just wanted to make a disclaimer to say that I am not a physician and um, that the things that we're discussing tonight is really for educational purposes only. If anyone has prediabetes or diabetes or is concerned, they should check with their family doctors. Okay, so if we want to look, take a just quick look at the reasons for this, two reasons for diabetes mellitus. Number one, the body is unable to make insulin. And that type of diabetes is referred to as type 1 formerly called juvenile diabetes. And then the second type, second most prominent type is type 2 diabetes, and formerly we called it adult onset diabetes. These terms were actually changed from adult onset to juvenile diabetes because now we're realizing that diabetes spreads right across the lifespan. And so we are finding adults with type 1 diabetes, not just children, and children with type 2 diabetes, not just adults. So we cannot talk about diabetes without talking a little bit about insulin. 
And so in just a two couple of sentences, I'll say it's the hormone made by the organ called the pancreas. It's a hormone that helps cells like muscle and brain cells open up and pull sugar from the bloodstream to be used for energy. And it also allows excess sugar to be stored in the liver or fat cells until needed. So the type of diabetes depends on production of insulin or the ability of cells to respond to the insulin and pull sugar in. And this third type, which is less frequently seen, but still fairly common, is gestational diabetes. And that occurs only during pregnancy. And it is as a result of the hormones produced by the pancreas, but by the placenta. It has really very little to do with the production of the mother's insulin, but has to do with insulin resistance. Wow, that is a lot to digest. (laughs) (laughs) Especially the sweet urine. (laughs) I mean, I'm still, yeah, I'm still focused on sweet urine and urine testing. Sweet water, I guess, sweet water and urine testing. (laughs) Okay. Try to get that out of your mind. You don't have to test urine these days. So exactly. Thank God for that. (laughs) Well, you know, but you know what I also thought? I was also thinking about how people say that your urine is sterile. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be that bad. Not that I would want that job. I wouldn't want that job. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just trying to think about making it that job better in my head. That's all. So I've really been looking forward to this conversation because diabetes, well, type 2 diabetes does run in my family on both sides. Both my maternal grandmother had it and my paternal grandmother and my dad have type 2 diabetes. So what are some things that I can look out for? Okay, so if you have a strong family history, One of the things I would say, don't wait for signs. Okay. Do annual blood work. We'll talk a little bit later on the specific lab work that will tell you if you have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. But if you're waiting for for signs and symptoms, you already have the disease. So what you're looking, what, what what you may find are increased thirst. And that's because you're pushing a lot of fluid out. So increased urination because the body is trying to excrete all that sugar because you're not excreting just sugar. You're excreting fluid as well. You're going to get very thirsty, excessive hunger, because that sugar is meant to go into your cells, the brain cells, the muscle cells, and it's not getting to where it needs to go. So the brain keeps telling you, asking, where is my food? Where is my food? It's floating around in the blood, not able to get into the cells. And so excessive hunger is also a a sign. Blurred vision, and that's when damage starts occurring to the small blood vessels in the eyes, cuts that don't heal, erectile dysfunction in men. All of these are usually signs of of type 2 diabetes that has been misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. And so why, and which is why I say don't wait for signs. Mm -hmm. But if you do have these signs, certainly make sure you're checking with your family doctor and checking to get the blood work done. 
You know, when I was a student nurse, one of my favorite topics was diabetes. I loved it because uh, the four cardinal points, like you just said, the polyuria, polyphagia, and, you know, just, you know, sequentially looking at what leads to what. It was very interesting for me. And I did not know at the time just how dangerous diabetes was until, Mm -hmm. especially in recent times. However, you do hear a lot of people say they don't have diabetes. Yes, borderline. So Mm -hmm. this is uh, very confusing for a lot of people. What do people mean by this, Angela? Okay, so some people will say, and and my grandmother uh, used to say she just had a touch of sugar. Now that's just as that's just as bad as saying you have borderline diabetes because it's like being a, a, a touch pregnant, and so it is there. But it really doesn't sit at the border. It doesn't sit on a fence. If you have pre-diabetes, which was formerly borderline diabetes, it will progress to type two if you're not paying attention to it and changing your lifestyle. And so the the, the World Diabetes Association actually changed the terminology border borderline diabetes. It is not it is not allowed to be used in medical terms anymore. Although I know some patients still come and they will say, well, my doctor told me I had borderline diabetes, but the term now is actually pre-diabetes, meaning that it's pre means it's a precursor to what's coming. So it's, it's the diabetes, it's the signs of diabetes, subtle signs of diabetes before the actual diabetes. And it's differentiated from type two diabetes, mainly by the numbers in your blood work. So for example, if, if we don't have diabetes, your blood sugar testing, which is the, the one I'll talk about later called an A1C, should be 6% or less. If you have prediabetes, it's a very small fraction of a change. 6.1 to 6.4 tells you you have prediabetes and you're heading for type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is diagnosed once that number hits 6.5. So you can see there's a very small margin in terms of what is pre-diabetes and what is not. So pre-diabetes, if taken seriously, 60% of the time you can prevent type 2 diabetes. Especially if you if you if you pay attention to your pre-diabetes stage, right? Absolutely. Once you get that, let it be a warning sign for lifestyle change. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I always tell my patients it's an opportunity to live well, eat well, exercise, the things we ought to do anyway. And some people actually develop diabetes, uh, are more likely to develop diabetes than others just from their body shapes, right? Like the apple and the pear shape and stuff like that. And apart from that, maybe you can touch a little bit on that, like who who is, you know, more high on has a higher risk, depending on how you are shaped, as well as tell us some other factors that can predispose people to diabetes, please. Okay, so some of some of the things that Sherry mentioned would be family history of diabetes. So brother, sister, mother, father, etc. That would increase your risk for type 2 diabetes. If you had gestational diabetes, so when you were pregnant, which means that, or if you had a baby over four kilos, which is approximately nine pounds, puts you at risk. 
if you belong to a specific background and higher risks are found in Aboriginals, Hispanics, Asians, South Asians, or people of African descent. And what Christiana is talking about is actually a symptom of metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is not a disease, really. It's a cluster of symptoms that puts you at higher risk. And that cluster of symptoms include high blood pressure. So if your blood pressure is over 130, over 80, larger waistline. So when we talk about apple and pear shape, apple shape is if you're skinny elsewhere, but you've just really got that bare or pot belly. And what we're looking at is a measurement of the waistline from the belly button. So for women, ideally, to reduce your risk, belly button measurement of the waistline at the belly button should be less than 35 inches. And for men, 40 inches or less. So the body shape and fat distribution actually matters. If the if you've got prediabetes, which means your sugars are going up a little bit over six, high cholesterol, different types of cholesterols are measured. And one is called triglyceride, which really puts you at higher risk. And that's the waxy type of fat that sits inside the blood vessels. And so all of these things, a number of these things together, and if you have more than one or two of them, of course, it increases your risks even more. But these are things can actually be changed. And so if you know you've got these challenges, it's it's really the time to take a look at correcting them. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. So what can we do to prevent ourselves from developing diabetes? Okay, so one of the questions our patients usually ask, the very first question, okay, oh my God, so what am I going to eat? <laughs> because for some reason, it, 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 when they say diabetes, your sugars are too high, people sort of get into their minds that I cannot eat certain things, which means I can't eat bread, I can't eat pasta, I can't eat rice, I can't eat all the things I like, so what am I going to eat? So the first thing to remember is that there is really no diabetes diet. When the dietitians discuss um, diet with the patients, what they're discussing basically are portion controls and really just the quality of the foods that they're taking in. And so some of the things that you can actually do to, to prevent or, or manage the diabetes if you actually have it is to choose foods that are high in fiber. Fibrous foods are really great because they're more filling, number one. The fiber, yes, does have uh, carbohydrate or starch, but it does not get digested. And so the, the, the starch in it does not count. So one slice of, say, white bread and a slice of whole grain bread both contain 15 grams of sugar. But the whole grain bread, if it has five grams of fiber, that means it's five grams less of that 15 gram that you will be digesting and that sugar that will get into your bloodstream. And so what you're being taught to do is, yes, you can have your bread, but instead of the white bread, have a slice of whole grain bread. And uh, other things are like choosing other complex carbs, like because they, of course, do not raise blood sugars instantly. Sleeping well. Another thing that we don't do, Christian and I often laugh at this because <laughs> we often say we need to get into bed on the left-hand side of the clock and we very seldom do. <laughs> I just sent her a text last night to remind her to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because basically when we sleep, our bodies secrete growth hormones, which builds and repairs muscles. So it's the time for our body to really rejuvenate itself. 
And the body actually needs about six hours to repair and, and rebuild itself. If we stay awake at the time that we should be sleeping, our body is forced to keep insulin levels higher. And basically what that is now doing is contributing to insulin resistance and inflammation. So it means that there's a lot of floating insulin in our bloodstream, but our cells are not reacting to it. Our cells are not responding to open up and, 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 and so that the sugars can enter the, 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 the cells. And so we know that in terms of research, one night of sleep deprivation can actually trigger resistance the, the very next day. So when you're not feeling really right and feeling really crappy the next day, it's really because your body has not had the time to rebuild and rejuvenate itself. And then the other thing you can actually do, one of the biggest things actually is weight loss because weight loss has a dramatic effect because it actually helps to reduce insulin resistance. The belly fat, we talked about body shape distribution. Belly fat actually has different type of fat than fat found on the hips or the legs or the arms. It's a brown type of fat and it actually produces its own hormone that actually causes insulin resistance. And so if we can lose not just but not just pounds on the scale, but if we're looking at losing belly fat as well, that will make a, a dramatic difference. Wonderful. So diagnosis of diabetes is not actually a dead sentence, even though I say that it could be, I find that it's very dangerous. And it's deadly, but not a death sentence. So what Absolutely. are some of the complications of diabetes to look out for? Okay, so if we think of diabetes as a, a disease where there's excess sugar in the bloodstream, and this sugar really is circulating constantly within the bloodstream, we have to think of diabetes as also a blood vessel disease because sugar has been likened to literally like broken glass running through your veins. If you take a teaspoon of sugar and rub it in your hands, it's definitely not smooth. It's got rough edges on it. So if, you're, if your bloodstream has sugar running through it consistently, the blood vessels are going to break down. Things like cholesterol is going to start building up on the inside walls of the blood vessels, making it narrow, make, making them narrow and much more difficult for blood to flow through. As a result of that, we see things like heart disease. We see, see things like stroke, kidney failure, blindness, anything where any anywhere where there are blood vessels, particularly tiny blood vessels, you will see damage first. So you will see damage first in the eyes, the fingers, the toes, the kidneys, because these blood vessels are extremely tiny and more susceptible to to to, to damage and rupture. But the other thing which I usually tell my male patients, particularly because I find that a lot of times when our male patients are there, most of them want to know what to do, but they really truly don't understand the impact of sugar running through their blood, bloodstream. And so I make it a point to, to, for them to pay attention to the fact that actually this is one of the major causes of erectile dysfunction in men. More than 50% of men with type 2 diabetes that is unmanaged or untreated have erectile dysfunction. That's so crazy. It's yeah, really, um, and, yes. 
the the other thing as well while you were speaking that people need to look out for is when people you said they lost circulation and the tiny blood vessels like the toes and the fingers and stuff like that like when people have wounds that are not healing it's time to go check why you know go get your blood absolutely absolutely christiana and like i said that is a symptom that you don't want to know to see before you know you have diabetes because you already have uh, damage to your blood vessels. You already probably have damage to your circulation. Yes. So, but for sure, if that's the first sign, make sure you go and check it. So, I mean, there's so many things that diabetes can lead to in your body and it's pretty scary, but also, I mean, it's really exciting that, you have the power within you to change things, right? Absolutely. You can make it better. You have to be, you have to work at it, but you can do something. Absolutely. Um, But I guess the question is, is there a cure for diabetes? Actually, sure. Before you continue with that answer, Angela, I just wanted to highlight something quickly that Sherry and I have talked about, which I think is very important here, why you Mm -hmm. were talking about those complications. Another thing is vascular dementia. Mm. You know, diabetes is one of those diseases that will cause you to have dementia because it leads to those tiny strokes. Like Angela has explained, if your blood vessels become narrowed and clogged and, you know, the the flow of blood is thickened, those tiny vessels that supply your brain could rupture. And those little damages eventually lead you to brain damage, which is, you know, vascular dementia. And this is one of the most treatable dementias because if you if you manage your diabetes well, you won't get there. So I just wanted to yeah. say that quickly before you continue, because I see that mm-hmm. every day and it's heart wrenching that this is something that can pre- be prevented. Absolutely. Absolutely, Christiana, because remember, blood vessels also run in the brain. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, wherever blood vessels are, mm-hmm. blood is going to go there and the sugar will go with it and it will damage the blood vessels. So absolutely, you're really you're, you're right on point with that one. So the question also is like, is there a cure for diabetes? But also, does everybody that has diabetes or that everybody that lives with diabetes, must they also take insulin? Okay. So asking about a cure for diabetes is kind of a tricky question. Some researchers say say it depends on the cause. Insulin resistance can be managed with weight and fat loss, exercise, et cetera which basically allows the cells in the body to stop blocking insulin from doing its job. And so your blood sugars return to normal. But does that mean if you regain the weight, especially belly fat and regain a buildup of fat around the organs like the liver, will the sugars go high again? Yes, they will. So I like to think of diabetes as being dose dependent, or in other words, depending on the amount of insulin being produced by the pancreas, and the amount of insulin resistance present. So can we reverse the blood sugar numbers to normal? Certainly. Mm -hmm. You can have type 2 diabetes, change your lifestyle, and reverse your numbers. So if a doctor who does not know you had diabetes 
cannot tell by looking at your lab work, your A1C or another form of blood of blood sugar testing that you had diabetes. So, and I've had patients, I've worked with physicians who have taken their, their patients off insulin. I've worked with doctors who have taken their patients off, off pill, of diabetic, diabetic pills. And these patients continue 5, their lifestyle 000. management. Pardon? You said diabetic pills, $5,000. Yes, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yes, it is possible. It certainly is possible to reverse the symptoms of diabetes. So what you're saying is that it does not mean that they a cure because if you revert back to the lifestyle that you were living, your blood sugars will go back up. Absolutely. And remember, one of the one one of the reasons for diabetes being manifested is a, a is, is damage to the pancreas. Pancreatic cells that make insulin actually start dying off and they do not come back. We don't yet have the scientific information or knowledge how to repair pancreatic cells. And so whatever insulin your body was making prior to that damage is now less. But you can manage your lifestyle so that your body can still effectively use that amount of insulin. If you change your lifestyle, it's going to you're going to still go back to the disruption because now you still have less insulin to work with than you had before. Hmm. And your your other question was in terms of taking insulin. Yeah, yeah, because so, I know some people who actually I know very little people who actually take insulin most people take medication yes most of the people by the time we see them they are on medication with pre-diabetes you can certainly live without it for a very very long time if not forever but one of the main misconceptions is that if you have diabetes you will eventually end up on insulin or if you start with medication you must take it for the rest of your life but the truth, the truth is that many people can manage type 2 diabetes with just lifestyle alone. And sometimes, even if you start with medications, your diabetes team can work with you if you have a goal of coming off the medication. It's not always possible, but it can certainly be achieved if one is willing to put effort in. But it depends, again, on factory production, it depends on the production from the pancreas and reducing insulin resistance through lifestyle management. Some people, especially if the diagnosis is delayed, will likely need an oral medication or insulin at the beginning to help. But with proper management and a bit of work and focus, taking insulin does definitely not have to be the answer. That's good news. Yeah. So, Angela, some of the things we teach is how to live well with diabetes. Please tell us and our listeners some key points for survival. So you've got diabetes and you want to, you know, reverse your numbers or you want to, you know, even if even for people with juvenile or type 1 diabetes um, that have to actually be on insulin because that cannot be reversed. So what are some of the key points of survival, please? Well, I think a- they should be uh, key points of thriving. Oh, yes. Thriving. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <That's it. laughs> well, there, there, there is a quote from uh, Laura Siren. She's the CEO and president of Diabetes Canada that I often return to, refer to. And it says, 
diabetes is something well known, but it's not known well. And so my first tip for survival is education. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power. Patients once said, I never met a stranger till I had diabetes. But once you strike up a conversation with a stranger, there are, they are no longer a stranger. So if you are diagnosed with diabetes, learn as much as you can about this disease that may be strange to you. This is the age of information. Read about it. Google it. Listen to podcasts like Forever Young. Just do not get complacent. Don't sit and think it will just go away. There is a quote that says ignorance is bliss, but whoever coined it, I am sure they never had diabetes because type two diabetes slowly damages blood vessels and can do so without any symptoms for many years. It's not something you want to be ignorant about. Blood vessels, as we said, run everywhere throughout the body. So the damage from the excess sugar flowing constantly through them can occur in the eyes, the feet, the kidneys, the brain, the heart. And you need good blood vessels. You just need your blood vessels to be in, in good condition, the best condition possible. So before the appearance of signs and symptoms that we discussed earlier, there are a few survival skills you can practice, not just for survival, but living well skills. I call them living well skills or as Sharice says, thriving <laughs> thriving skills. Thriving skills. <laughs> yeah, thriving skills. But before you continue, Angela, I just want to interject and say knowledge is not necessarily power, but applied knowledge. So when Absolutely. you have that knowledge and you don't apply it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you ain't gonna thrive according to yes (laughs) absolutely exactly you have to you have to do the things you need to do yes do the things we should be doing daily without with or without diabetes or pre-diabetes so it's applying the things and and really it's just like the saying you know faith without work is dead Mm -hmm. and so you know like having the knowledge and not doing anything about it really you're not going to get any results So once your blood work shows that your sugars are climbing, know that research has shown that almost 60% of the time you can prevent type 2 diabetes with exercise alone. So if you factor in changing food habits, increasing fiber and vegetables, changing the quality and amount of your starchy foods, increasing your water intake, depending, of course, on your health status, because with some conditions such as kidney failure and congestive heart failure, The doctor may limit the amount of water you can drink a day, but factor these things in and you have more than a 60% chance of living well with diabetes. When it comes to the exercise, make it a priority. It's a 60% advantage. And the recommendation from Diabetes Canada is 30 minutes a day, five days a week. You can break that down into three 10-minute segments for the day, depending on your schedule, or if you have not exercised in a while. But a brisk, continuous 10-minute walk is capable of dropping blood sugar one to two points. It's that effective. The muscles literally use sugar as fuel. So after 10 minutes of burning up what's there, they actually now start pulling more to keep you going. The body is a machine. Just remember that when we use it, when we move it, we need something to keep it going. And that our fuel, our primary fuel is is glucose. And then last but not least, of course, self-monitoring of blood glucose. Lots of times patients will come and I will, now they're full blown with diabetes. And I will say, 
when were you diagnosed? And they will say, oh, a month ago. And I will say, well, did the doctor ever tell you you had prediabetes? Yes, five years ago. Did you ever get any education or get anything done? No, because they did not think that it was important. Monitoring the blood sugars is really, really essential. Even if you have di- just prediabetes, remember it's the pre that matters, meaning that you're getting a preview of what's coming if you ignore the warning. And one way to tell how you're doing is really to test the sugars. And having a diabetes team, diabetes clinics, the, they, they are covered under OHIP. So if you have OHIP, you can actually go, you can be, be referred to any diabetes clinics. Some of the diabetes clinics are actually self-referral. You don't actually need a doctor's referral. They prefer it. But certainly it's one of the best places to be educated about how to test the blood sugars and really how to, to keep how to live well, how to live well with, with diabetes. And now there are so many tools to test. Before people were really just scared of uh, pricking their fingers. Now we have continuous glucose monitors. We still have the traditional finger testing machines. We have flash monitors, which uses a sensor in your arm to pick up the readings as the sugar flows through the blood. And maybe by the end of our chat, there'll be a new device on the market. But technology has made it super convenient for you to listen for to, to what your body's telling you before your organs are damaged. And of course, annual checkups. If you have a family history or any of the risks associated, just make sure that you're getting your annual checkups. And the lab work that I was talking about, make sure you're asking for an A1C to be done. The term A1C literally means sugary red blood cells. It's the blood work that will tell you what percentage of your red blood cells has been covered in sugar in the last three months. And as per Diabetes Canada guidelines, if that number is 6% or less, you're considered okay. If it's 6.1 to 6.4, you're considered to have prediabetes. And if it's 6.5 or more, you already are type 2 diabetes. So those are the numbers we look at when patients come and say, I feel fine. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with me. And then we actually show them the numbers and we say, this is what determines whether you have diabetes, prediabetes or no diabetes. I actually think that the A1C is one of the best inventions because people with diabetes, what they do is the week before they see the doctor, a few days before they start to eat healthy because they want to keep their blood sugars nice and pretty. But not knowing that A1C actually takes a measurement of three months. Correct. Activities of your blood (laughs) sugar level. can't hide that. (laughs) No, you cannot hide that. You can't. You can't trick the doctor. And I don't know why people do that because it's about their health, right? And the other thing, why you were talking about new invention, I was thinking maybe the three of us can come up with this invention. I'm just thinking maybe that device, like a mirror, you look into it and it reads your blood sugar level. Wouldn't that be cool? Through your eyes. Exactly. That would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah. No one should steal this idea. Oh, here you go, (laughs) Christiana. Don't give the secret away, though. Let's work on it first. (laughs) (laughs) So this has been an awesome discussion. You've given us so much food for thought. Sherry, you see what I mean about Angela and diabetes? She's my diabetes 
guru. So I can't wait for our next discussion, Angela. Well, in, in, thank you so much. And in summary, I just wanted to reiterate that you cannot really control the genetic tendency for type 2 diabetes, but you can do the basic things you have control over, which is clean food, clean water, clean mind. And uh, we know that all plants get diseases, but those that die are generally the ones with poor soil, limited water supply, and no sunshine. Humans are no different than plants. So poor food choices, too little water, lack of exercise can make the difference between progressing from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. So, you know, let's just work on avoiding negative emotions. There's a saying, be angry, but don't let it rest in your bosom. So reduce your stress. Know whether you're at risk for diabetes. Gather as much information as you can about it and just take actions to prevent it. And just one of the things I think people, we also need to do is stop identifying ourselves with our dilemma. And as we said before, stop identifying yourself as a diabetic. You're a person. And if you can change the person, we can certainly alter the course of diabetes. So absolutely. And I also just want to sort of piggyback on what you just said, because now actually science is saying that you are actually not your gene you're not your genetic makeup. You are your mm-hmm. genetic expression of that gene. So Absolutely. like Sherry said, she has yes. diabetes in her family. You know, if she takes steps to stay healthy, she's not going to develop diabetes. Absolutely. So absolutely, it's something that you can work at. And I just hope that we all take it to to heart to try to do our best to keep ourselves healthy and forever young. Yes, I I totally agree. But I thought it was funny when Angela was talking about our bodies as plants, because Christiana kills plants. So... We're going to need to think of something else for her. <laughs> we need to, we need to give her a list of survival tips for her plants. My, you see how well my <laughs> Oh, no, yes. I'm good. I'm going to green palm. <laughs> okay. Okay. See, so, I Angela. upon that, see? Yes, you have improved over the year. Exactly. <laughs> Angela, if our listeners want to get in touch with you or want to learn more from you, can we share um, some contact information? So they can connect con- connect with me through email. So it's walkershealth at gmail.com. So that walkershealth, one word, at gmail.com. And I also have a website called walkershealth.com, but it's currently under construction. My son is working on that for me, and that should be up and running in a few weeks. And so... Currently, they can they can connect with me through my email, walkershealth at gmail.com. Perfect. Oh, that was fantastic. So I'm Christiana Eggy. And I'm Sherry Marie Chu. See you next time on Forever Young. Until then, keep smiling because you're never too old to become younger. The Forever Young podcast is created and produced by Christiana Eggy and Sherry Marie Chu and it is produced and engineered by Elise Hill. The podcast represents our opinions and those of our guests. The content should not be taken as medical advice. It is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. 
special thanks to the Ella Accelerator for bringing Christiana and Sherry together. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes are available every other Wednesday. Have questions? Email us at ourforeveryoungpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook under Our Forever Young Podcast. Thank you for listening.